Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Good morning. Uh, How are you? Very nice to see you. I, I hope you can see short sleeves. Oh, my goodness. You know, I live in Minnesota, and uh, <laughs> this might be the last day for it. It'll, it'll come pretty fast and heavy uh, here. So I'm hunkered down for what's about to come, but you know, it's still actually pretty sunny out here. So I'm just, I'm just being prophylactically putting on the sweaters for fall. So yeah, yeah. but the weather's nice here. Yeah. Well, why don't you introduce our guest? Sure. So we, we have, um, and I always say that, but you know, um, I've known, I've known this guest now for probably over two decades. We first met at, in Glasgow, I I believe he was a resident and I was probably just either finishing my fellowship with you, Mark, but it was around that time we met in Glasgow at the combined orthopedic meeting of the Commonwealth countries, I believe. And for those of you who attended that meeting, you may have seen a resident, an upstart by the name of Matt Costa, who is now a professor of orthopedic trauma and surgery at the University of Oxford, among many, many other accolades, which I could spend the majority of our time talking about. But he has done, I think, which is what we, you and I have had always talked about many years ago and continue to try ourselves, Mark, which is get people together and get people working together towards answering really important questions. And the fruits of his labor have been published across widely, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers. But I would say for all of us, uh, New England Journal, Lancet, JAMA, BMJ are not common places where we would see orthopedic papers. So huge congratulations. And by, and Certainly, last but not least, he's been published very well in all of the orthopedic journals as well. So, welcome, Matt. And, you know, we're just really curious to kind of get a sense of how things are going for you with all this work you're doing. And I guess you could call it global fame as a researcher. Rockstar status. Very, yeah, rockstar <laughs> status. Yes, yeah. That's very kind of you. I'm not sure that's true, but um, it's very kind of you and very good of you and Mark to have me on the show. I've got my short sleeves on as well today, but oh. it is cold and wet in the UK. We just wear shorts and sleeves uh, when it's cold and wet over here as well. You're tougher. So, so Matt, from your perspective, I mean, did you know, like back then, did you have a sense that this was where you'd end up looking back at your resident self some years ago? And, and what what surprised you most about this journey? Uh, no idea at all, Mo. I remember uh, listening to to you talk about meeting in Glasgow and um, being, you know, pretty starstruck and thinking, "How is that possible to do all that sort of stuff?" And um, I know we've talked about it many times. So no, it's entirely accidental. If you told any of my uh, trainers and my professors when I was a trainee that I'd uh, sort of become an academic, they would have laughed at that suggestion. I definitely wasn't uh, academic in the making, but um, through opportunity and good luck and uh, a bit of work, then. Um, these these things happen, don't they? As, as you guys know better than anyone, if you you keep working, keep pushing, and keep the vision, then uh, things eventually fall into place. Yeah, persistence is definitely the key, and I know you well enough to know that you've got that as an important characteristic of your personality. So maybe you could uh, review for us in the audience uh, how how did how did this uh, concept of network trials in the UK start? Well, I guess it probably goes back to 2006, Mark. Uh, two really important things happened in the UK. Uh, one was the formation of our 
National Institute for Health Research, which was the research arm of the NHS. And uh, it was a brand new institution and designed very much to address the needs of patients directly. So the UK, as you know, had a, a great reputation in sort of discovery science and things like developing imaging for MR and CT and antibiotics and things like that. But we were not very good at translating that into benefits directly for patients. And that's when the NHR was formed. Um, the other really important thing in 2006 is I got a job, um, which was working at University of Warwick as a, a very naive, very junior associate professor. And, and that gave me some time for the first time in my career, really protected time to think about research. So I explored the opportunities within the National Institute for Health Research. And um, they seemed quite keen on doing things that I was interested in, which was really about frontline patient care. And I guess we we built from there. We uh, we took advantage of the new system, the new funding opportunities. Um, we realised very early on that there was no point in doing things as single centres. So copying particularly what Mo and colleagues did in, in Canada with the Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society, we, uh, we copied that model of collaborative working, not just for delivering the projects, but setting the agenda and setting research questions. And then NHR, I've always had a focus on patient care. So we then involve the patients. And these days, we only really do research that the patients say is important uh, from their perspective. So we've taken that even a step further. Um, so, yeah, uh, from, from small beginnings, I mean, it's like many of these things, isn't it? I was right place at the right time. No, nothing more than that. So there's no um, huge plan I had from from day one. This was all to do with uh, taking advantage of opportunities as they uh, as they come along. And as you said, just persistence, really. So then who was who was it for you, Matt? Um, sorry, Mark, I was just going to jump in with this one. Yeah. Who, who was it for you, Matt, in uh, in work? Was it was it Damien Griffin then? Because I I remember meeting Damien Griffin, you know, I mean, before I met you and he had just taken over pretty. I mean, if I look at his uh, at that time, he was considered a fairly young department chair, very keen, very motivated to make research his focus. And I met him at, an, I think, an AO meeting. And then after I had heard of all these things, what was how was he involved, I guess, in your early career? And I guess I'm trying to understand who opened these doors or who helped you see the pathway that you're on now? So, well, Damien was instrumental. Yeah, he was my first boss. He was my boss at University of Warwick as the new, uh, relatively newly appointed sort of chair in orthopedic uh, surgery. Uh, back then. So Damien gave me a job. I don't know. He probably still regrets that to this day, but um, he was <laughs> instrumental by offering me that opportunity. We we kind of vaguely knew each other from days in Cambridge when I was training, um, but he really took a chance on me. I had no particular track record. I'd done a PhD in trials and trials methodology, super, supervised by a statistician who's still a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, still puts up with me. So I had a bit of background, but Damien took a punt, so very much uh, his, his fault all of this. In terms of the person that really guided me, though, it was a lady called Sally Lamb, who uh, you guys will have come across as well, who's uh, actually a physiotherapist by background, but a professor of clinical trials and trial methodology. And she was um, hugely influential on me in terms of how you think about clinical research and how it's delivered. And also Sally had uh, uh, was very important in NHR right at the beginning, really, chaired one of their funding boards, so I had an inside track on how things developed and how people think. So Sally was and still is, actually. In fact, I was just out for a drink with her at the BOA just last week, and she was still giving me pearls of wisdom and guiding my career. So I think Sally would be the other person at that time that was hugely influential for me. Great. So Matt, you mentioned that you uh, have developed a system for collecting 
patient input into how to decide the topics of trials? Maybe you could give us a little more detail of how that works. Yeah, so um, uh, it's a process. We we had a patient public engagement group for, for many years now, Mark. Um, but in terms of the research prioritization, so that the patients sort of help all the way through the trial from inception, design, delivery, right the way through to reporting. So these days we do a lot of work on dissemination, which is led by the patients. It turns out that lay summaries and, and animated videos of the results are much more popular than listening to me talk at a meeting with graphs and figures. So I, I just play the video these days. It seems to work. Uh, in terms of the research prioritization, though, there's a, a thing that started in the UK, but is now international called the James Lind Alliance. Um, so for those of your listeners who are interested in history, James Lind was um, a ship's captain in the Navy many years ago and was um, one of the people, or at least the the um, uh, history is that he started one of the first trials uh, ever done. He, he gave some sailors lemons and limes, some beer and some water and found that the rate of scurvy was lower in the lemons and limes, but the rate of happiness was greater in those with beer. So um, he, he was credited with that innovation. <laughs> Anyway, in his honour, the National Institute of Health Research and collaborators all around the world named uh, this organisation, the James Lind Alliance, and that brings together members of the public and healthcare professionals, but not researchers. Researchers are particularly excluded um, to set research priorities. And it, it's a fairly long-winded process. It takes about 18 months to go from setting the agenda right the way through to a consensus meeting. But it spits out a top 10 of research questions. Um, for instance, we did one a little while back on fragility fractures in the lower limb. And much to my dismay, surgery hardly appears on that list. From a patient perspective, it's things like rehabilitation and perioperative care that are more important than the bits of metal. But um, we did get some metal work in there, but at number 10 on the list, it was a bit of a tough sell. But um, yeah, so, and that's how we do all the prioritization now for all of the questions that we, we answer. If the patients don't think it's important, then quite frankly, why are we bothering answering a question? That's fantastic. So this is a basically a national level board, if you will, a, a, a structured Board. Yeah, it's well, it's, a, it's an organisation. It's a, a structure and a framework for creating research priorities. So you apply to this body. It's now hosted by our NIHR, our National Institute of Health Research. And you give them a, a question and you give them a methodology and put together a team to steer the group. And they, they then allocate you an advisor uh, who manages the process on your behalf according to their framework. And then you ask patients and healthcare professionals for what they think is important for research in a particular area. And then uh, through a process, you then uh, narrow down their suggestions to a, a smaller group. Uh, you review the literature associated with each question, because sometimes those things may be answered. In trauma and orthopedic surgery, as you guys know better than anyone, uh, there's not many questions that have been definitively answered, but there are a few, um, at least to our satisfaction. And then eventually you get everyone together in a room of patients and healthcare professionals, and uh, you try and work out your top 10 priorities. And as well as being important from a patient perspective, they also get ticks the boxes for funding bodies. So if I go to our NHR and I say, I've got an idea about a new trial, they say, whatever, Matt, we've, we've heard it all before. <laughs> um, but if I go and say the patients around the UK or sometimes internationally say this is the most important question, they can't really ignore that. So it's uh, it's a foot in the door when you've gone through that process. And I'm a, I'm a real convert to that way of deciding what's important to research and what's not these days. Well, thanks for sharing those details. I think we can learn a lot from that. Uh, don't you agree, Mo, that we can involve patients more? Yeah. Absolutely. And if you're looking at some of the grants that are happening in the U.S., I think, and even at, at the Canadian Institute of Health Research, patient involvement and patient engagement is a big part now of, you know, of 
trial method, even the methodology part of it too, right? Like, you know, what are the methods that are making sense for compliance and do they make sense, the outcome makes sense for patients, et cetera. So good on you, Matt, to continue uh, pushing this forward. Now, I'm going to go back again, if you don't mind. Mark and I have this back and forth here, but I'm going to take you back to now. So you've got Sally Lamb as your mentor. I want, you know, because there's a group of people that are also listening that really are trying to understand you know, the evolution of Professor Matt Costa. I can tell you that's for sure. I know, and I'm sure that they're probably too afraid to ask you. So I'm going to ask you. So you have a mentor in Sally Land. You have your first job with Damian Griffin. You, you start working, you start getting some early success. Did you expand your your circle of mentorship beyond Sally? Who's I, I'm suggesting the fact um, that, that she seems pretty important to you. How did that evolve? In other words, if you were giving a recipe to someone who's trying to do the same thing, and by the way, I'm never ever going to state that there'll be another Matt Costa. So this is not about creating another Matt Costa, but it's about creating somebody who's saying, well, you know, how did it work for him? Can you can you give us a bit more insight a little bit around, you know, so after that period of time, how did you end up in Oxford and what were the, you know, in a nutshell, some of the key people that uh, facilitated that for you? Well, I think uh, it, it's very difficult because each individual has their own requirements things they want in a, in a mentor um for me i needed a bit of it wasn't just mentorship there was an element of it, it, sally set a direction really for the for the trials unit in in warwick uh, but i think the thing i really valued about sally's input in particular was her complete honesty with me so she would happily tell me even though i'd spent weeks working up an idea that this was terrible was never going to happen i should never have thought it it not only wasn't feasible it was probably dangerous uh, and just that really blunt feedback. And um, I remember the first time I wrote a grant application and submitted it, she said, I don't think that'll work. And I submitted it and waited six months and got the inevitable rejection letter. So I got to go back to her and she said, well, I told you so. And sometimes you, you need that, really. And the second time I listened to her a bit more carefully and uh, we managed to get a bit of funding through that way. And so I think it's it's not being necessarily your best friend all the time. It's telling you hard truths and directing you and so on. And letting you make your own mistakes as well. Sally was very, very happy for me to fail on multiple occasions. And uh, many other of my mentors over time, you know, Keith Willett in Oxford uh, and people like that, um, Chris Moran up at uh, Nottingham, you guys probably know as well, and, and, and many others as well. And outside of Drummond Orthopedics as well, um, sort of various sort of people who've helped me along the way with just insights into things I've been pondering and looking at too closely. And uh, there was a bigger picture that they pointed out to me, and that, that's always quite helpful. So I'm not sure that answers your question, Mo. I can, no, no, I looking at different well, for different things at different times in your career, yeah. but for me, it's always been a, a sort of honest friend, someone who just tells me when I'm talking about. Yeah, and, and I think the people around you shape who you are, right, and, and what you become. So how do you now take all this information, um, and I, in, in a, a great degree of research success on top of your practice success? Um, how are you now? How has that shaped you as a mentor for others? Um, how do you behave when you interact with others? Especially on, on those really keen, like, you know, um, when I say really keen, it's everything's relative, but, you know, the idea of someone comes up to you and says, listen, I'd like to, I'd like to consider a career as a surgeon scientist. How do you help that individual? Well, the most valuable thing that any of us have to offer is time, really. And that's the, unfortunately the thing that's in shortest supply again you guys know this better than me there's only so many hours in a day but i think if you can give someone time to talk and to give you their ideas and, and sound off and use you as a sounding board then that's probably the most important thing you you can do so 
I'm conscious that maybe some of the people that work with me and have done over the years will be listening to this. So I'm not going to say I was brilliant at it, but um, I hope that they always had a, uh, I had a bit of time just to talk. But sometimes, it, you know, that time is about saying to people, well, don't, don't bother doing a, a higher degree. Don't do that bit of research at that time. Because quite frankly, doing a PhD is three years of your life. If you're only doing it to get a job in a particular institution, that's a long time. Yeah. So unless you're really thinking seriously of a clinical academic career, which for us in, in the UK is kind of working employed by a university as opposed to a hospital. So I, I'm an honorary surgeon in Oxford. My colleagues tolerate me there. They kept me awake last night overnight in the operating theatre. But um, uh, yeah, they let me still do the bit of the job that we all love, the operating. But uh, I actually work for the university. They pay my salary and, and so on. And to do that, you need a, a higher degree as a sort of entry-level requirement and all the things that clinical academics need to supply. But for most clinician scientists or most most researchers who work in a healthcare system, they don't need that. And they can contribute hugely towards research and lead projects without having to go through that formal career training. But if you want to make inroads and have influence within universities, then you do need that track record. So I guess I spend as much time reassuring people they don't need to do lots of research and fill out lots of bits of paperwork and write lots of grants applications to be involved. And there's lots of ways of being involved without having to do all that paperwork. But for a small number of people that do want to take that career option of becoming a, a, you know, a career academic first and foremost, and accepting the fact they'll only ever be an honorary surgeon like myself, um, then they need to understand what that means. And it's a hard road with lots of hurdles and lots of pitfalls. And unlike many surgery jobs, it, it's time limited. You're on fixed term contracts. And if the money doesn't flow and the outputs don't come, you're, you're out of a job. So it's a hard world. So people need to understand that before they go down that route. So now don't get me wrong, I'm not being negative about clinical academic careers. I absolutely love my job. It's a huge privilege to do what I do. And I know you two feel the same, but it's uh, it's not easy. So people starting out in that, I think, need to know the reality. And I guess that's partly my job these days to, to lay that on the line for them, whether they want to hear it or not. Really gets back to that persistence, though, doesn't it, Matt? Uh, and that's a key personality characteristic for those uh, who wish to proceed in this way. So I, I've got one final question for you, and congratulations on a fantastic career. Uh, and I'm, I would guess that you've probably been involved in 50, 60 trials, maybe, maybe more uh, in your in your career. Which one or two would you say are, you're the most proud of or have had the most influence uh, internationally on care of the orthopedic patient? That's a, it's a good question, Mark. I guess the, the obvious one is that the paper we wrote just last year on cemented versus uncemented hemiarthroplasty, which um, uh, was published in the New England Journal. And um, we deliberately did that to sort of to make sure that everyone over on your side of the pond took notice um, because uh, we were using cement over here quite a lot beforehand. But I know that uncemented implants were very popular, particularly in the US. So that was deliberate. And that was just hugely lucky, really. It's very, very unusual, as you guys know, to have a trial that shows a and improvements in quality of life for patients, a lower complication rate and a cheaper intervention. So to get that alignment to the stars was almost unique. So that one certainly changed practice in many parts of the world. I don't know how it's going in the US, you can tell me, but it's uh, that's been a big, a big result. Um, I guess the other one comes to mind was a, a trial, probably far less important than the greater scheme of things, about Achilles tendon rupture and rehabilitation, about immediate weight bearing. 
And uh, that, the reason that one comes to mind is because that was my PhD subject. And I wrote a small trial up in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery uh, many years ago. And I thought that question was answered, but it turns out no one had ever read the paper, never mind taking any notice of it. So we had to repeat that trial. And I think it was 2018, we finally published in the Lancet a much larger multi-centre trial. And that's certainly changed practice in the UK, where we hardly operate on Achilles now, and they all get immediate weight bearing rehab, or most of them. So I guess that one, from a personal point of view, was hugely rewarding, even if it did take me 20 years to actually finally answer the question. That's great. Mo, do you have one final yeah. question? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, and it goes back to the, you know, it, it's all. It, I imagine it's very difficult for you to choose, you know, a particular study. But often, you know, for me, it's always you remember the very first one you ever did because it was almost that, you know, like wow, this is what it feels like. Um, and usually, you remember your last one, right? I mean, like there's a whole bunch in between. I'm not saying that's that's the case, but but so Mark's asked you all that. But let me ask you this: what what's left to be done in your mind? Like, I mean, okay, so there's a point at which you're going to say, you know, it's time for someone else to take over um, the work that you've been doing. Uh, you know, you'll be mentoring a lot of people. You've got, to, I'm sure, have a very thoughtful succession plan to maintain the productivity and the importance of the work you're doing. What's what's left to be answered for you? And I'm, again, that's probably many, many trials. But is there a question that is still, and maybe not the question, but a theme that you want to make sure you address before you hand over to somebody else and you move on to another important part of your career, I'm sure? Well, yeah, I guess there's two elements now. I think that we've, in the UK, and certainly that we've got some great um, sort of young people, young uh, surgeons and scientists and uh, not just surgeons and uh, sort of physios and nursing staff and so on in, in Oxford and around the UK that are coming through. So making sure the doors are open for them, I guess, is key. And the reason for involving such a disparate group of people now is because I think the perioperative care pathway is the key here rather than just the surgery. It, much as it pains me as a surgeon by trade and background to admit it, but which screw you use in which hole is probably not the most important thing in determining long-term outcome for the patient. So I think that whole perioperative care pathway, you know, managing things like delirium for hip fracture patients and improving rehab access in the community, uh, you know, are probably going to make a bigger difference. So I, I guess that's the focus for the UK. And then um, really, again, uh, taking uh, inspiration from some of the things you've done, Mo and Mark as well, um, doing some more global health stuff, particularly low middle income country work. So we've got a large trial about multidisciplinary care for hip fractures starting in South and Southeast Asia at the moment. It's building a lot of work over many years and, and that's hugely exciting. And um, to be able to have the privilege of working with surgeons and scientists in, in those parts of the world is is huge and their enthusiasm is, is just phenomenal. Um, I had a surgeon who recently moved his entire family to take part in a study between two cities in Nepal. And when you've got that level of dedication and commitment, it, it's, it properly humbles you and uh, and uh, makes the day a little bit brighter. So, um, yeah, I guess that's the exciting thing for me. Uh, and I, to be honest, I really enjoy what I do. I, I love the operating. Um, I say very tolerant colleagues, Bob Handling colleagues in Oxford have put up with me for a long time and still still seem to manage me hanging around. So I'll carry on doing that and, and loving the research as well. So um, as I say, it's a great privilege to do what I do, really. Yeah, and I, I think I'll just echo that and maybe the last statement here, Mark, which is, you know, you've highlighted so beautifully, you know, kind of starting off um, as a trainee, starting your program, growing the program to national and then to international, and then ultimately, you know, having this dream, which is like, like you're going to fulfill it, of global, right? Big questions are often global questions, and big questions often answer very fundamental issues. They don't answer the complex stuff. It's the simple fundamental questions that are often rarely answered. So, 
Good on you. And uh, it's great to see that uh, things are moving in the direction that you want. Uh, yeah, it's great. Thanks so much. Sure. Thank you. And thanks, yeah. Mark, uh, as well. It's great to have me. I'm a big fan of the show. Yeah, well, Matt, uh, it's been a very uh, fruitful conversation. And thank you for sharing your insight on so many topics with our audience. And for your time, we're going to try to get to you one of these absolutely priceless ortho that's that's what I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you did it, I'm sure. That's, that's why your response time. That's why your response time was like two minutes on that email to invite you. Like, boom, I'm in. I want that. Just the, the thoughts of a coffee cup. That was that was absolutely it. I'm, I'm very honoured. Or well, tea. Or tea. By the way. By the way, we're, we know it's, 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 it can be. It can be tea. It's just just as good. So. Well, we hope you get some rest after working all night, Matt. And thanks again for spending the time with us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mike. See you soon. Take care. Thank us again. Bye bye.